First of all, it's a, a real honour to be participating in your service today. Um, I've heard my cousin Waitangi talk about this uh, this church for every time I see her. And uh, we, we always met my uh, wife and children to get out here one day. And um, although they couldn't get here today, I'm, I'm very pleased. And for what I've seen so far, really moved to be here. Uh, and I'd also like to thank your, your pastors. Um, as they said, I wear many hats and I'm always turning down uh, invitations to do things because I'm so busy. Uh, but he's, Carl's very persistent. <laughs> and um, it's due largely to, to his persistence that I, I'm here today. And uh, I'd just like to you know, bless you all. May God bless you. Your congregation, everybody who's here today, now and forever. Um, he asked me to speak about the Treaty of Waitangi because Waitangi Day is coming up. But you, and I'm a historian, I'm not here as a preacher, I'm here because I'm wearing my historian's hat. But to understand the treaty from uh, a Christian perspective, you, you've got to know that pretty much the 20 years that led up to it on this coast. And, um, and then you'll appreciate how people saw the treaty back then. Um, I did, I did um, think of a, uh, this morning in, uh, in prayer, I, I was wondering what is a relevant scripture to what I'm going to talk about today. And uh, the one that came to me is Chronicles uh, 2, 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And I can tell you that scripture back in the 1830s, which is the period I'm going to talk about, was relevant. Relevant. People heard it, they applied it, and life changed back in those days. But it's as relevant again today. Um, in Gisborne uh, and along this coast of Tairawhiti. Uh, first of all, you've got to understand what life was like before the treaty, and before European got here. Before Park arrived on this coast, um, and, and I must acknowledge, you know, we're 200 years from the gospel having arrived uh, on these shores when Marsden first preached back in uh, 1814. But we're also 180 years from the first service that was preached on this coast uh, in 1834 at a little place called Angitukia. And it was preached in January 1834. So it's kind of ironic that I should be here talking about the subject that uh, who would have thought 180 years ago when they preached that service that um, the church would have grown uh, to the size it is today. But what was life like back then? Well, I can tell you now it was brutal for Māori before European arrived on our, on our coast. And uh, it was largely due to um, the lack of resource uh, between groups of people, so they're always fighting over resources. Um, relationships used to cause a lot of problems. The tongue, um, words that were said and 
anger to uh, tribes between tribes that led to um, people going to war over that. And um, the other one was marketing or witchcraft. Uh, people believed that uh, sometimes when uh, there was a death in the family, it was because another hapu or tribe put a curse on them. So all those things were pretty uh, prevalent in those days, and so you lived by your wits, and you never knew when the hapu or the sub-tribe across the, the valley was coming to take your resources or avenge some uh, insult that was said maybe two generations ago. And uh, Cook said that when he was here and further north, they went into the bush and they found, they, they happened on a family who were asleep, nomads, in the bush. And he said, um, they, when they awoke, the, the men went straight for their weapons, which were hanging on the trees in such a way that they could get them quickly to um, defend the family. And that's when he realized that this was what life was like. Um, you just never knew when somebody was going to try and kill you. But the worst thing that was happening back then was cannibalism, kaitangata. Uh, the sins of the Canaanite. They were prevalent here. That, so that whenever there was a battle, you feasted on your, your victims. And I'll give you, it's a bit uh, tough to swallow this, but I'll give you an incident that happened here in Gisborne when Whakatohea, which is the Portuguese um, people, came across to avenge an insult uh, from the Gisborne people. And um, they surrounded them in a par, and the tactics back then was to uh, wait them out, and they'd run out of food and water, and they'd have to come out eventually. And they were there for months, sitting outside this par, waiting for them to give in. And uh, a lady, uh, one of the chief's daughters, decided to try and get out the calabashes in the night and get some water, because the children were uh, crying with thirst. She was captured that night, and in the morning they were watching from the par, and this account was written by a, um, one of the early European settlers who was a participant on the side of the Whakatoa group. And he said that um, they were going to, they prepared um, a wood stones for a hangi and they were going to cook her in front of the, the pa uh, so that those people would know what was going to happen to them when they finally gave in. And uh, the worst thing was they got here her to prepare all the vegetables that were to be the relish to go with her um, when they put the sangi down. And they, she came up and she uh, had, when, it was, when they were going to kill her, hungied with these people because she knew a lot of them, which shows you that this was an accepted practice. Everybody knew this was the tikanga. There was no way she was going to escape. And um, when... Uh, she finished, they started in front of her so that the park would here be speaking the parts of her body that they were going to eat later that day. And then they didn't club her or anything like that. They lit the fire and they told her to throw herself on the fire. And, uh, which she did. And she, she screamed uh, for mercy that they should um, put her out of her misery. And they, they laughed. And they said, we won't give you that, we won't give you that vision. Now, that's one example. And I can tell you several stories like that. And, and it wasn't Pagatoe and Turanga alone. That's every, every hub along this coast, uh, right throughout this country. That was the practice. And, uh, I guess at the end of the day, humans back then were treated as, uh, meat on the hoof. And, um, you know, it's, 
I, when I was young, I used to hear my relatives say, it would be lovely to go back and live in the days of our ancestors. <laughs> but when you understand what it was like, you'd never want to go back to, to those very dark days. So I'm telling you that so that you understand the power of Christianity to change all that. Because they knew no way of stopping that. It had been going on for generations. Um, you know, somebody would recount an event that happened in their grandparents' time and they'd see an opportunity to take revenge on, on that group of people. And so it was always about balancing the books right up until Christianity arrived. Now in the 18, 18, uh, 19, sorry, 1818, Ngāpui, the northern tribes got a hold of muskets and uh, the intertribal feuds and public feuds escalated from about 1818 onwards with the introduction of the, of the musket. They came down on this coast, went right from Hicks Bay right through to Mahia, and with the use of the muskets, just uh, it was called Te Amio Whenua, uh, basically raped and pillaged the place, and took back a thousand prisoners uh, up north and uh, as food and also as slaves. And back in those days, if you became a slave, you were never, you were never seen again, and that was you resigned uh, your life to the fact that you'll serve another tribe. And you know the north is a long way from here. It was the first time they'd ever been on this coast, and it was a revenge excursion. They got the details wrong uh, on who actually they were supposed to avenge, but they cleared this whole coast, and you know hopefully they would have got the right people. Those people who were taken to the north in 1818, the missionaries were there at that stage. They were, they were struggling to convert, they hadn't converted anybody, but they had started mission schools. And some of those people from this coast um, were rescued by the missionaries and they went into those mission schools. And one was a man named Tomatankura, who was from the Waipu Valley. And uh, he was there for well, over a decade in the tuition of these missionaries. And then in the 1830s, a ship called here on this coast and uh, took some people. They were bartering off uh, Te Araro and they, they had a bit of an argument, so he kept these chiefs on board and he took them up north and he dropped them there. And the missionaries there uh, rescued them because otherwise they would become slaves and said that um, they would take them back to where they came from. And they asked, could we take some of our people back who are in the mission school? So Mata Akura was one of those people who came back in 1834, in January. And uh, they came here and they landed at um, Te Araro, walked over to Rangitukia, had the service, because there were two big paths on the coast. Everybody had congregated, either Rangitukia or Whakawhitira. These paths were a mile wide, because they had built them to... Um, uh, withstand the attack by muskets and they'd gone down on the flatland. There was one here in, uh, in Gisborne, so you had thousands of people uh, all congregating together and so they held services and that was the first time anybody had heard of this Christian God because Māori had Atua Māori, they had Māori gods. And Tomātākura, because he turns up 14 years after he was taken, you can imagine for a psyche of the Māoris, he died, or he was a slave to these people, but he's returned. And they're preaching this message about forgiveness and uh, resurrection. 
And so it was to them like Tomat Akul had been raised from the dead. And uh, he was able to say that the reason he is alive is because of this white man, William Williams, it, it was. And so Williams was almost deified as a god to the people on that coast. And Williams dropped him here, he spent uh, a little over a week, and he went back up, up north. And Tomar Kakura stayed and he began to preach what he had learned from the mission school um, in Ngātikau. And he was, uh, you know, Tomar Kakura, he was enthusiastic. He'd teach that uh, you um, treated both Saturday and Sunday as holidays and that you didn't um, prepare food on those days. And you know, a lot of his people, that's what they practiced because that's all they knew. But nobody really, the Holy Spirit hadn't really moved on this coast until 1836 when, uh, you can't see it, the tribe that's uh, north of all, east of Hexbeth uh, Whanaapune. And they were coming for, um, they were going to fight Ngātipo, you know, one of those vendettas where they were um, squaring up the ledger. And they asked, Ngātipo asked Tomātākura, would he go as their tohunga? And maybe, um, you know, he would bring favourable odds to this, this great army that they were taking. Ngātipo had the support of Tūranga, this, this place here, right down to Wairarapa. They call on people to come. This great army went around to the Kaha, and the Pānaapuni had um, Ngāti Awa, which is Whakatāne, right around the Tauranga. So the coast from Tauranga through to Wairarapa were gathered at the Kaha in 1836 for this battle. And on the day, the first day of the opening day of the battle, Tōmātākura got up to preach. And uh, Apanui were listening, and all these warriors were laid out in front of him, and he said, Whakarerea, whakarerea rawa tu, o which means, let us this day rid ourselves of our Māori gods and have this one God as our God. And uh, everybody agreed to that. And then he told them, these are the rules of the, the battle. You will not fight on Sundays. You cannot take from the wounded. You can't kill the wounded. You can't take anything off their, of their possessions. Um, and you had to treat them uh, friendly, you get to be friendly to the wounded, which was, you know, these were hard things for, for Māori to understand, but they said they'd adhere to it. Now, on one particular day, 70 men raced towards this pa. This was a siege, so they were there for months. 70 men went towards this pa. It was known that three, well, I suppose, young chiefs in this group of 70 had broken those rules. They had taken parts from, uh, I think, weapons of, of the wounded or dead, and, uh, there was a volley of musket fire shot at the 70, and bullets went through shirts, uh, musket rounds went through clothing, but only three people were hit. The three who everybody knew had broken uh, the rules that Tamatakura had set. So you can imagine what that did in the minds of everybody. This God is great, you know, that he could, he could select out of the 70 these three. And basically, from that point on, everybody started to believe, now this is a powerful God. And they, they said to Apuni, packing up and going home, um, that they won't fight anymore, that they're going to pursue this God that Tomata Akura had introduced. And they came back here. For the Pana Apuni and those tribes around there was a, 
this has never happened before that someone would stop a battle um, for those reasons. But they sent emissaries around here to ask, would you teach us too uh, about this Christian God? Overnight, from Tauranga to Wairarapa, everybody turned to Christianity. It was the greatest awakening, I believe, that this country ever saw, although it's not, not documented anywhere. This whole coast in 1836 uh, became Christians. It was the only way to stop those feuding. Kaitangata was stopped overnight, the eating of flesh, um, and life changed. Williams came back here in 1838. He'd been away four years, but he had heard from people who were traveling to the north, you've got to go down to the east coast and see what's happened in that area. He came back. He could not believe that people were practicing, um, well, Saturdays and Sundays, um, having services on Saturdays. Some of that built native chapels out of um, Lopor and, and uh, you know, native wood. And he said, he wrote in his diary, it is not through the hand of your missionaries that has done this, but by the power of the, of the Lord. And, and he wrote in his diary, you know, praise God for what's, what's gone on. And I can tell you for 20 years, from that time on, this place prospered um, because there was a... Uh, a boom, a gold rush in Australia and in the Thames, and they needed wheat and vegetables. And so places like this um, felled all the trees and started planting uh, to supply that market. And so there was money, goods, and they were the place really profited. And in terms of that, that uh, verse, God healed the land for that period. Now we get to the treaty in 1840. Williams brought it here. Now remember how people saw Williams. You know, this guy could walk on water as far as they could consider, and he presents this treaty. And he presents... He had already presented the Queen Victoria as the mother of the church, and now here's her, this treaty she was bringing. She had only brought good things through the church. So when they saw the treaty, they saw it in the same, same light. And it was called, not Te Tiriti or Waitangi, but when it was presented it was... The Kawanata or Waitangi, the covenant of Waitangi. Māori knew the Bible really well and they understood what a covenant was and that, uh, that it was biblical and to break a covenant is to bring the wrath of God on you. And that really explains why, even today, a lot of Māori hold to the treaty because they know, despite what the colonial government did over the years, that they have to uh, hold to the treaty because it was a covenant. Uh, between Queen Victoria and their ancestors, and their ancestors gave that word, their word, and for them to breach it today is to, uh, again, you know, to bring a curse upon themselves, which, which might help you understand why they keep bringing it up, uh, the treaty all the time, because they see it as a covenant. Um, in 1865, here in Gisborne and along this coast, there was a big, there was there was an internal war over a foreign religion being brought here. It was called Pai Mari there. It was brought from Taranaki. Um, they were told not to bring it here, but they converted a lot of people. A lot of people were known by the Hoho -ho religion. And so all these descendants of these people that signed the treaty who had committed to one God believed that it was a false God. And that's why um, all that fighting occurred in the 80s. Uh, 60s. But a lot of people turned to the Paimanere religion uh, and the Ho-Ho faith. 
And uh, as a result of it, that prosperous period that happened from 1838 for 20 years, it stopped on this coast. And uh, poverty, alcohol, all those things that we still experience today um, set in. That's a very quick coverage of the history leading to the treaty. And while I'm, I'm not certainly here to talk about the detail of the treaty, just to give you an understanding of how Christians see the treaty today. Oh, sorry, I just... Just so that you do believe me that Māori, when they received the gospel back in the 1830s, now, a lot of people have written about this, and they say they accepted the gospel because the missionaries brought the plows, they brought reading, they brought um, material benefits. And they, I mean, unless you're a Christian, it's hard to believe that they might have accepted it because there was a spiritual awakening in their, in their, in their lives. This is uh, one of the chiefs here who was talking about, in 1860, um, this was written down, he said it in Māori, but He's talking about the impact that the um, gospel had on The missionaries came bringing the gospel. They admonished us to abandon sin, that the soul might be saved, and that our sojourn on earth might be pleasant. While they preached, we embraced religion. A thousand were baptized, others embraced it. Two thousand were confirmed. We were all subdued by their weapons, and then the road was opened to us. And that's really what happened. Thousands turned to... Uh, Christ in the 18, in the 1830s. Not, they didn't come in small groups, they came in thousands. Um, for this whole coast to be converted. And, next one. And the son of the chief says, the first word of the gospel was repentance, absolution, forgiveness of sins and peace. When the missionaries arrived, they saw that many of us were in the depths of misery. Some of us were bound by the chain of the enemy, and some were devouring one another. Then did their hand seize us by the forelock and draw, draw us thence, and we stood forth from the gulf of darkness. Then for the first time did we behold light and salvation, which have remained to us to this day. Those who were bound were released, and those who were devouring were parted. Cannibalism and other evil practices of this land were all abolished and superseded by the works of God. Thank you, Monty. I think uh, we'll pray, pray a blessing on Monty, pray a blessing on our land, and that um, what God has done before, He'll do again. Yeah. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for Monty. Pray your uh, blessing on him. Thank you uh, that He knows you, that He knows what you've done. And Lord, that as he goes different places, you would go with him by the Holy Spirit. He would um, have your assurance, have your uh, your living words to speak to people. And Lord, we uh, we pray again what you've done on this coast that you would do again. Yes, Lord, that your name would be Amen. Amen. And. Uh, uh,